and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the latest edition of ESSR Feature here on the Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet Podcasting Network. I'm your host this week, Stephen Wilson, and it's rumble season. And what better way to get in the fever for this fantastic time of the year is to go back and watch a Royal Rumble. Now you may be now asking, what Rumble have our panel been subjected to? Have they watched a good one? Or anybody who listened to our December to Dismember show last month may think, oh no, we're gonna get something like the 1996 Royal Rumble. Fortunately, we went back exactly 30 years and we are looking back at the 1992 Royal Rumble with tears in our eyes as we go to talk about this memorable show, memorable show, memorable match on a show of a Royal Rumble team. Uh, before I introduce my panel, who may or may not have enjoyed 25% of this show, I said I don't know why I said 25%, it's a five-match count, uh, 20%, <laughs> please uh, subscribe to us if you've not done so already. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. And you can find us on YouTube as well. Just search Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet on there. Lots of content we've done last year and more to come this year, both on YouTube and on the podcasting side of things. Now, joining me for this particular show, it is the Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect to my Bobby Heaton. It's Gary Kilburn and Chris Murray. Gents, how are we? Woo! (laughs) Gary, which which, which one do you want to be? Oh. Oh. I don't know, Chris. I don't know. Um, uh, I think I'll probably see myself more as a Mr. Perfect because everything I do is just absolutely perfect. (laughs) Does that... (laughs) Right, that makes me flare, right? So basically, kind of everybody hates me, and I'm a bit of an arsehole. <laughs> well, if, if the shoe fits for somebody. <laughs> Stephen, I feel so old tonight. I remember going into school the day after this Royal Rumble and hearing who won and being raging, uh, but not really believing it, and then getting home and getting uh, the video that had been recorded by my dad's Uncle John for us because he had Sky at the time and very few people had it and being able to watch it and being even more raging when I realised it was true the winner of the Royal Rumble really was sorry spoiler a lot for people Ric Flair I was raging I mean I would I, I feel old but I can't feel as old as that because I was 18 days old when this show was on <laughs> so I it's not exactly like I can watch it you another know, reason why 1992 got off to a bad start Stephen was born and then a bad guy won the Royal Rumble oh god I know it's my first uh, is it my first recording turning 30 is it? no I did one last week it's my second recording turning 30 I'm getting old I can't remember things uh, yeah I mean Chris, uh, you were you're not that old either. You watched no, it. You no. probably watched, You probably first watched this like two years ago, knowing you. Well, I actually remembered my story about this rumble, right? The year is probably 2004, uh, and for a certain generation of listeners that are not too old and are not too young, they will remember 
a, a beautiful little purple program that was called Casa Light. And uh, when I first got dial up, one of the first things that I would do is just download all these old wrestling matches. Uh, sorry, WWE Network, I pay for you now, so it makes it okay. Uh, and one of the first ones that I remember downloading is I spent a week tying up the phone line just to download this match because I just heard it was really, really good. Um, and then by the time I downloaded it, the the actual file, like you could, I could barely make any of it out because the the video was so small. Um, and I I like like for instance, I, I distinctly remember when Greg the Hammer Valentine came out, and I was just like, I, I don't know who that is. It's just a blonde, small man. I don't know who it is. But yes, yeah, so I watched it for the first time when I was very young, like maybe like I don't know, 14, 15. One of the first things I ever downloaded illegally off the internet. Um, and yeah, and then eventually watched it properly, probably about maybe, well, in the, in the network era, so what's that, 2014, somewhere since then? Uh, 2015 in the UK, yeah. 2015, and it was just a pleasure to watch it back this week as well. Um, what a show. Um, definitely heavier at the end of the show than it was at the start, but yeah, what a show to look back on. 30 years, my God. Oh, it's, it's mental, I mean... It definitely wasn't my first uh, dodgy download. Uh, my first dodgy download was the um, episode of South Park where Tr- Cartman tries to figure out who his dad is. <laughs> oh, I had that on VHS. <laughs> oh, can I tell you a VHS story? I think folk will appreciate that the efforts that this is. Derek, my brother and I, we used to go to Global Video in Thornwood and we would rent video, wrestling videos and we bought a cable that you could then connect to VHSs together and record uh, your VHS, so we'd have like all these our, our own collection of pirate VHSs that we <laughs> got from Global Video. We would uh, record them all. I still got some of them somewhere because I couldn't bear to throw away my my pirate VHS of SummerSlam 1991. I mean, I mean if. Um... If Gary gets arrested in a couple of weeks, we're sorry. Uh, I, do remember, police, I do remember the police, of... the police don't investigate retrospective crimes. That's That's been clarified by the UK government and the police because they don't investigate. They're not going to investigate <laughs> Boris. So I'm going to use the Boris defence. I mean, I remember they said piles of uh, VHSs <laughs> going to the, the Kerlihan household as a child, seeing all these videos and well, the rest is history. Uh, so, before we get into the matches, I'm going to do what I usually do when I host one of these look-backs show and give you a bit of information of what happened on Rumble Day 1992. It took place on the 19th of January uh, 1992, obviously, at the Knickerbocker Arena. Don't want to say that again. In Albany, New York. The arena is now the MVP Arena and has also hosted significant moments in wrestling history such as the night that Austin charged to the ring with the beer truck and the first ever Money in the Bank cash-in at New Year's Revolution uh, 2006. Uh, 17,000 people attended this show and as they told us many times throughout the broadcast, that was a record for that point in the arena. (laughs) Now on this day in history, the live-action version of The Addams Family Topped the UK cinema box office in its third week. Bohemian Rhapsody was top of the UK singles chart in its fifth week for the second time following the unfortunate passing of lead singer Freddie Mercury. And 
for anybody, the very few people who are fans of the Percy Jackson film series, the star of that film, Logan Larman, who's also now starring in the Amazon Prime hit series Hunters, was born. So there we go. He is younger than me. I'm the at Adams, that stage now, I'm just quoting people younger than me. The Adams Family films, I will I'll go to bat for every day of the week. I think they are absolutely phenomenal. Um, both films, Adam's Family from 91 and Adam's Family Values from 93, phenomenal. Uh, I think his name was Raul Julia, who played Gomez, phenomenal actor, died not long after that. Just, oh, if anyone's listening to this and hasn't seen the Adam's Family films, before you stop this podcast and go and watch Royal Rumble 1992, stop this podcast, go and watch the Adam's Family, just get a real feel for the era that this is in, and then go and watch Royal Rumble 1992. I mean, regardless of what you think of said awards now, I mean, the girl who played Morticia was nominated for the Golden Globe for the Adams Family, for God's sake. But I mean, the Avengers films can't get nominated for anything, but the Adams <laughs> Family's getting a Globe nomination. But that was then. I get into trouble for talking about random stuff on the podcast <laughs> and then we're opening up a Royal Rumble 1992 show talking about the Adams Family. Yeah, I was just doing a brief thing. Chris went into it in very, very <laughs> deep, lots of detail. I have so many more words I could say on the Adams Family, but I'll hold my tongue. Well, for um, more information on that, go to Chris's, whatever Chris hosts his um, random thoughts on Twitter, TikTok, whatever. Anyway, Royal Rumble 1992, let's get to the action. And the first match on this particular show is a show, let's be brutally honest, we'll, 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 you'll understand this, it's all about the main event. The fact that the main event is for the WWE title and is a 30-man Royal Rumble it would probably explain the undercard that we got for this particular evening. And it started off with the U Foundation, which was Owen Hart and Jim the Anvil Nyhart taking on the Orient Express. Now, I'm going to go to Gary first of all, because uh, before we came on air, I mean, myself and Gary were talking and Gary mentioned that his memories of Royal Rumble uh, shows before the actual Royal Rumble match were very heavily influenced by the Orient Express. <laughs> yeah, these, I don't know if it's one of these things where your memory plays tricks on you, but I always remember Royal Rumble undercards as being something you just got to get through them. There was very little, like this year's Royal Rumble, I'm actually quite excited about some uh, in the undercard where you're going to have Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley. I'm keen for that match, and I'm sure Seth and Roman will be a great match as well. Back in the day, they were just something to get through. There was very rarely anything to be excited about. Now I have this memory of having to endure Orient Express matches. The Big Boss Man versus the Barbarian felt like they happened at every Royal Rumble. Uh, <laughs> and there were, you know, looking back at this one, actually, I, I remembered there was an intercontinental title match announced, not the match we got, and I remember the tag title match being announced, but sometimes you go into these not quite sure what what there was going to be, and certainly uh, there's two matches that we're probably going to talk about I wish that I didn't have to endure again. I was excited about the new foundation, not the Orient Express, because I was growing up, Bret Hart was my hero. I loved the Hart Foundation, to so to see the Anvil and Brett's younger brother in this new new team. Um, I, I was I was excited about about this uh, team. Uh, now the match I thought the match was was fairly decent. I think it was 
at 17 minutes, far, far too long of it. Owen, I, I enjoyed also looking back at a different version of Owen Hart. He was more of a, 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 a different style we've seen of him, more of a hi-fi. It was called The Rocket back in these days. In his latter years in WWE, was more of a sort of technician ground wrestler. You didn't really see him go to the top rope here. But this type of style that Owen did, whilst it's not the type of cruiserweight stuff that you would be familiar with this day, it was a style not often seen in WWF at the time. So he was he was dead exciting about the match. Um, but the, there was one bit in the match, guys, I don't know if you felt the same, where Owen was beat down for uh, seven minutes, I think it was before we got the hot tag and I just felt like it was dragging on and on for forever um, of them but yeah th- Uncle Gabe gave it three and a quarter stars he's quite generous there mm-hmm. I guess slightly generous I mean I get what you were I, I was completely agreeing with you what you said there I mean Owen's down for about seven minutes the hot tag it's done and the match is over 30 seconds later yeah. it's just like they blew a load really quickly on that particular one. Uh, Chris, um, one of the the U Foundation. I've never seen much of the U Foundation previously. All my memories of that era was more Nighthard than Brett. Uh, Nighthard not wearing pink was something a sight to behold. I don't think I'd ever see that. Uh, but with Gary mentioned Owen Hart, the way he walked in that one, I think he stands out like a sore thumb in this match. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, stylistically he was just completely different from the other three, wasn't he? Um, okay. It was almost like a cruiserweight before they had even... Uh, it was still a twinkle in Vince's eye to even have such a thing uh, <laughs> in the Federation at that time. Yeah, th- this was this was interesting. You had uh, a brand new tag team facing a brand new tag team, both of which were knockoffs of previous tag teams. You had... Uh, the new foundation which was the old heart foundation but no brett's off now being a single star so uh anvil brings in owen which i think you know the way that they did it worked quite well basically i think gary correct me if i get any of this wrong i think that um nightheart was getting beaten up by the beverly brothers this was back at some point before and he was like ah oh, i'm gonna get you and i'm gonna bring in my own backup and he brings in owen uh, as a sort of tag partner and that was a good way to sort of you know get the story going and um, move past Brett and that tag team and move towards the new foundation change the get the um, uh, wrestling attire completely so they look like a completely new tag team as well quite like that uh, the other side of the coin the Orient Express Gary do you remember when it was Sato and Tanaka yeah. not Kato yeah. Well, they changed somewhat. Your 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 memory was right, uh, Chris, about that. What one of the bits about the story that you missed was Night Art had a match with Ric Flair of all people, and Flair had beat him with the figure four leg lock, one of those rarely cited matches where he actually wins with his finish. <laughs> and after the match, he gets beat down by by the Beverly ah, Brothers, right, 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 of them all, and uh, they they jumped him after the match to aggravate the injury further. And then he was out for about a month and came back with with Owen. Uh, so that was towards the end of 1991. Now, if memory serves me right, they disbanded around about 93, 94 when um, uh, High Energy became a thing and Owen yes. went off the team with uh, Coco Beware. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, would have been, it would have been 93 because 94 is when uh, 
own it, but it had the feud going out the WrestleMania, so I would have been thinking yeah. for it. But what I liked about this version of the Orient Express is that it was actually better than the first version we got, which, should, you know, I think they'd wrestled the Rockers at WrestleMania, one of the one of the pay-per-views, and um, so this version of the Orient Express, you've now got Kato, who's this brilliant powerhouse guy, and then you've got Tanaka, who's this small, wily guy that does loads of like jumping about and i'm like oh wow they've married they've mirrored these teams almost perfectly which i really really enjoyed um there's loads of spots in the match that i just picked out that i thought were really good i like that owen does brett's uh run into the turnbuckle with your chest move does it almost as good as brett uh tanaka does this mental like spinning cross body from the mat where he like jumps up so quickly cross bodies who i think was owen and then like Almost Rikishi bumps himself in the process of jumping up so quick. I thought that was really good. Um, I think I actually liked Kato and Tanaka more. They just had like more moves in their arsenal. Um, but I loved how the hot tag, the place just goes absolutely nuts for Anvil. I loved how pure it was. Like this is this is how wrestling used to be. You you build up to a hot tag and the place just goes mental. You just don't get that anymore. And uh, to to finish, I thought that the finishing move, the rocket launcher great name but i didn't actually care for the move itself yeah <laughs> i actually didn't mind it because in the context of 1992 you didn't really see it often can i give you a, a little interesting snippet in my research i found out about the new foundation is they actually there was a new new foundation <laughs> uh, that came back in the year 2000 when jim nightheart and his tag team partner um, came out into Memphis Championship Wrestling and became the promotion's tag, first ever tag team champions. You want to guess who Nightheart's partner was in the new foundation in the year 2000? Uh, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000. I'd be amazed if you ever, if anybody got uh, it. Is it. Is it a relation? I was like sort no. of spinning. No. no. So yeah, it's not it's like... It can't be anybody from the Hart Foundation because they're pretty much because Owen was gone and so was Owen. And then Brett was done in and Bulldog was in WWE still. So I can't. It was the Blue Meanie. Oh. <laughs> Did yeah. they just think Blue Blazer, Blue Meanie, close enough? Like I'm not sure they thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it may have been the, the, the Pink Meanie. It was the Hart. It was the Hearts, you know. But oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, before we go on, we have to talk about the fact that, um, Gary, do you know the backstory on Kato? I don't think I do. So, th- the reason that Kato is wearing a mask while wrestling for the Orient Express is, in case it's not obvious, he's quite clearly not Japanese. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, guy, the guy playing Kato here is Paul Diamond. Mm-hmm. They, uh, he was actually in a tag team with um, Tanaka and a different company, I can't remember who it was, and Vince when he got them together just thought, ah, right um, uh, Sato's gone so let's just bring in Paul Diamond stick a mask on him um, They, uh, <laughs> you might remember that Paul Diamond would go on to play Max Moon later in, I think it was either 92 or 93 uh, the, the funny thing as well was he wasn't even American, he's Croatian yeah, <laughs> even Tom better Thomas <laughs> Yeah, he's an, an ex-football. He's a goalkeeper. <laughs> yeah, we've we probably um we've probably given this match. Up? <laughs> hmm? 
Did, is, is he really a former goalkeeper or did you make ah, that he's up? he's a former keeper. He's a former yeah, keeper, he's, Google. His dad was a, a footballer as well, I'm sure. But um, I yeah, I think we've we've probably given this match a lot more praise than it deserves. I, d- I, mean, I don't know, maybe maybe this was one of the better matches on the card, but I think that probably speaks for a bad card as opposed to being amazing. I think it probably was technically the best match of the undercard, which speaks yeah. tells you everything you need to know about the undercard. <laughs> yeah, even if you're just going purely by Uncle Dave Meltzer's ratings, it's the best match of the undercard. He has I, he has it quite close to he has it on par pretty much with the main event, which is painful. <laughs> So um, yeah, the next match on the oh, obviously, as it's not clear, the U Foundation won the match with the rocket launcher. Mm-hmm. The move, not an actual rocket launcher, that would have made the match a lot more interesting. Uh, second match <laughs> on the card, uh, we had for the Intercontinental Title, uh, the champ, the Mountie. People who are not too familiar with this era wrestle will be thinking, what the hell? Uh, PCO's tag team partner uh, taking on the legend that is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, a match that kind of came about based on what happened on a live show a couple of days before it, where Bret Hart dropped the title to the Mountie uh, after defying doctor's orders with a high temperature. Uh, he said he was still wanting to wrestle, and he still wrestled. Uh, Chris, uh, Lord Alfred Hayes' description of these events at the live event is probably longer than the match itself. <laughs> Yeah, I wrote down that the whole incident was narrated by Lord Alfred Hayes and he makes it sound like we're watching tennis. <laughs> He's just so like... <laughs> I, I, I don't mean any offence to our uh, below-the-border friends, but just doesn't sound right for this at all. He just sounds so, so straight. He's, he, do you know what? I'm fine with him as an interviewer, but you can't, I can't hack Hayes as a commentator. Uh that it was just it was just so strange and and I and also I don't think he really did this moment justice because like Bret Hart's just lost the IC title he's not going to be on the card tonight like that's massive at this point but it's just it is a bit kind of passed over yeah on that news I I put this on to watch as I mentioned earlier on I did not know until the show started and the commentator spoke about it that Bret Hart was not going to wrestle on this show and there would have been lots of other people, thousands of people that would have tuned in to watch it, probably even the people that came to the building that night wouldn't have known that Bret wasn't going to be defending the title against the Mountie uh, until because we didn't have social media in 1992 so you wouldn't have known that this shock had happened on the on his show so I was gutted that Brett wasn't going to be there because I said earlier on Brett's my, my hero I'm almost I'm 40 this year and I've just uh, bought myself some personalised autographed Brett the Hitman heart sunglasses I never got them at a show but I've, I'm going to have them in a week or so's time as well I mean saying all of that whilst I was gutted that Brett wasn't going to be in this match uh, I can't say that I'm disappointed that Piper was then inserted into it and I'm certainly not disappointed in what followed with the match we got for the IC title at WrestleMania 8, which I think is a bit of a bit of a dream match that came came to fruition. Yeah, this is kind of like I don't obviously we didn't really have there wasn't social media back then, so it's harder to speculate on what was what back then, you know. But this is obviously just feel like a bit of if Brett did have something up with. This is obviously a natural transition to lead to that match at WrestleMania. I mean, who knows if that was the plan at that particular point in time? But I just, I, that was my, that was my thought about it. I was kind of like, was this not, was this the year that Brett and 
Piper had that match. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's probably one of three Roddy Piper WrestleMania matches I can remember quite vividly. That, the one at WrestleMania won, and he's won with Goldust a few years later. <laughs> for completely different reasons. Well, you, I thought uh, you were going to see his match with Bad News Brown at WrestleMania 6, which you'll not find anywhere now. No, you will not. You will not. It's in, in the list of censored things as with, as of time of recording, se- several skits from Tune the Fat on BBC, but that's a completely different conversation as well. I heard uh, that yesterday. How mental is that, that they've cut bits out of Tune the Fat? Absolutely disgraceful. Yes, but I, I don't want to tangent too much. Uh, <laughs> Gary, I mean... You probably know a lot more about the Mountie than most uh, people. Uh, uh, the brief bits of this match, it kind of looks like he maybe has a bit of a better wrestler than the gimmick kind of shows. I mean, he, he obviously was a tag team champion, the Mountie, but he's uh, in a different incarnation of it. He's tag team partner, uh, PCO, as he's now known, is a lot more well known than he himself is. So, um, what was your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, he was probably unfortunate. He, was, he came along at the time when all these occupational gimmicks were, were the thing. And we're seeing the Mountie here on the sort of downward curve, if you like. Um, he had uh, a few good featured spots before this. I think my personal uh, highlight is the Jailhouse match from SummerSlam the previous year, which we talked about in great detail when we reviewed that show. And um, the Mountie, you know, in terms of his character work, he's fabulous at he's fabulous at that. The shock stick made him stand out at, at the time, and he is a he is a good wrestler as well. Unfortunately, that sort of gimmick it had its limit, and once he'd feuded with the Law and Order, you know, where else is he? Where else is he going to go? So actually, moving into the tag team as he as he did subsequently was probably a good thing for him. Uh, as well, I never really seen him as a credible champion. This um, uh, the build-up to the match. There's a bit in it. There's a promo from Piper where he refers to the village people. I'm not sure that's the greatest taste. Looking at it with the uh, the benefit of of hindsight as well. It was a uh, a match that's not going to be. You know, when we talk about classic intercontinental championship matches, this is one that's not going to make the cut. It lasted about five minutes. Uncle gave Dave gave it uh, a star in three quarters, which I also think is generous uh, as well. I mean, the great the, if I'm looking for positives from this match, you get a tremendous pop from Piper. The Mounties' and character work is fabulous as well. Piper won his first WWF singles, first and only WWF singles title. His second championship run would come many, many years later with the one and only Ric Flair of all all folk. Uh, It's also something else I learned from this match is Roddy Piper should not try to do a drop kick. (laughs) No, no. And uh, Chris, it was a, a match won with a sleeper hold. When we're talking about Ric Flair winning with a figure four leg lock, a freaking sleeper hold. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was, I, I basically wasn't ready for the ending. Um, I feel like all of a sudden the bell was ringing, I was like, oh, it's done. I, I do, I, I did have other highlights, like, um, obviously, as Gary mentioned, we had Piper and Mountie both doing promos before the match. I actually quite liked the Mountie's promo. Yeah. Um, he said. He said, what's Roddy Piper's win-loss record? What gives him the right to challenge oh, for my he, belt? He, he would love the AEW ranking system. <laughs> I was just like, 
I was like, do you know what, Mountie, you're bang on. Like, that's exactly how it should be. You've just got a guy who's decided he wants your belt. Although, Jimmy Hart does ruin it a bit by saying that Bret Hart got sick by losing. But he was sick before the match. And he didn't lose any matches. for And also, I looked on um, my favourite website, Cage Match, just to see what Bret was up to around this time. He wrestled and lost the belt um, at the house show in Springfield, Mass on the 17th of January then just went back on the house show just 10 days later so maybe like he just said to Vince like I want to go to Mallorca uh, can I get some time off <laughs> and, so, and that's why they did the belt change but yeah so he wasn't he wasn't off he was back on Superstars two weeks later um, the match I have so little notes on the match uh, I wrote I really hate the Mounties music I wondered and I thought I'd ask you is has Roddy Piper's music been changed for the network or like I didn't I didn't think it sounded like his original music but I could have been wrong yeah um I like the Mountie skinning the cat but that led to him getting in the sleeper which ended the match do you know what do you know what I thought was the issue was that with this <clears throat> is that on this pay-per-view the Intercontinental title match played second fiddle to the bigger storyline and that was on one hand you had the storyline that Piper's going to win two belts because that's all they spoke about was like Piper's going to be the first man to compete for two championships Um, and I I like that I like that storyline but it overshadowed the actual IC match and made it seem like whatever happens Piper's going to at least win the first one um, and then it was also an afterthought to like the taser gimmick because obviously this whole feud started because um, Mountie started tasering folk like Brett and then Piper and so like immediately after the match Piper goes to taser Mountie again and I'm like no stand and hold up your belt like get get those photo ops that are going to live for the rest of wrestling history it's just that was yeah. a bit of a shame but it was it was a great moment because Piper obviously as Gary said hadn't won a belt before um, and Heenan a really nice little quip from him was just like one down one to go it yeah. made it seem so achievable yeah. Chris you uh, you mentioned you asked about was this part of the plan for Brett and Piper to face at Wrestlemania Brett wrote, wrote in his book that that was the plan so they needed a, a transition right. that's what this angle came, came up with uh, but you, you know, I would have rather not had this match, but the seeing Piper win the Intercontinental Championship and then to go on and Piper and Brett at Mania, you know, I, I, I was happy come the end of that match at WrestleMania. Yeah, the WrestleMania match is a good one. And I say, if that was the plan for a tradition, I mean, transition, that the job, you know, got the belt off the mountain, he went to something else, mm-hmm. and Piper will. He had more to come throughout the night, and we'll see how that later on. And before we got into the next uh, match, we had a quick uh, video exclusive uh, moment uh, backstage promo where Lord Alfred Hayes again got to interview Hulk Hogan in his locker room, which looked awful like a public toilet. But enough about that. Uh, that. That was pretty much the only detail from that promo bit that I paid any attention to, especially when they said it was a video exclusive. So the fact he's at the sink in the bumming, you know, the closed off bog is right next to him is like really your your main superstar. You stick him in the toilet. I mean, people would think that about Hogan these days, but they are digressing. Uh, and then we got on to our second of three tag team matches on the undercard. Yes, 
three tag team matches. Alan McLucas will be having a field day listening to this uh, podcast. Uh, it is the Bushwhackers versus the Beverly Brothers. Uh, I'm going to kick off this bit though. Uh, Gary, when the fuck did the Bushwhackers get a manager? And what the uh, fuck was he all about? I'd forgotten about Jameson. Uh, uh, and you can see why I'd forgotten all about him. He's quite—he's not particularly memorable, is he? Um, I don't have a great de- deal to say about about him. I mean, my goodness, the—I mean, I hated, absolutely hated the genius. And like, I, I, as I said at the show, I was raging when Rick start the show. I was raging when Rick Flair won it. Rick Flair had good heat. The genius had X-Pac heat, as far as I was concerned. Just get the fuck. Uh, he just annoyed the hell out of me so, so much. Something, um, whilst I d- doubt we'll ever see James, I don't remember seeing Jameson again after this show. He doesn't um, have a Wikipedia page, which some- says it all. <laughs> Something that uh, I don't think we'll see much of today is wrestlers licking fans. As no. well, not this, especially the, not after the last two years. <laughs> yeah, the way that the bushwhackers licked some of the children by ringside uh, as well. This match lasted fifteen minutes. I think they wrestled for about three minutes. I <laughs> it was there was so much time wasting and pausing in the match. It just felt very. Um, very uh, stop start and you'd have some of the, the, the classic bits on it you know you have the heel on the, their knees reaching their hand out and the the baby face appealing to the fans should I shake the hands of it there was some stuff like that that went along for uh, that just met, felt this match just felt like very stop start to me for all of those yeah. those reasons there were a couple of spots in it when the match got going um, that I quite liked. You know, there was a schoolboy role uh, pop up with the the bushwhackers dropped down on the knees, and the Beverly Brothers sort of hit into each other, stumbled back over, and fell over the top of them. Um, uh, the stand on one of them and rolling the other one up. Um, I don't think Jameson particularly enjoyed the match because he was eating a sandwich during it as well. Uh, and started throwing bits of his sandwich at the genius. I think I was eating a sandwich while I was watching this, or was that cold? <laughs> <laughs> As well. I did think, I don't know if any of you thought this, uh, the finish, I thought, I wondered now, was that a botched finish? Uh, no, it, looks, it, it, looks, it looks botched. It looks like it looks Luke really was too slow to get in to break it up, so the Beverly's one with a double axe handle, and saying that, if that was a botched finish and it just gave us a little bit of mercy of this match finishing early, I am grateful for that botch. I mean, could you imagine if it is botched and that's like the match is 14 minutes long, the match is going to go on a wee bit longer. That's brutal thoughts on it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Chris, my, um, my extent of my notes here is uh, Beverly's not good enough, gimmicky enough to hold up, work well with the Bushwhackers. Because mm-hmm. I think you need to have one of the two. I think you need to be quite gimmicky to work with them. Or you need to be technically sound to make them look like absolute world beaters. And I don't think that. I don't think they hold it up well. I don't think the guy mentioned the match format doesn't go down well. I mean, my one highlight of this match is, uh, I think it's uh, the call from Heenan on commentary, Greco-Roman biting, which I think Yes. Is- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that is in one of my lines of my notes. I like that. Um, 
I thought the poems that the genius does, I bet that he loves them and nobody else does. They're always, a, they're always just a bit kind of naff, like, and they don't really fit with like WWF programming and the rhymes are always really you awful. Can, you can understand why of the two brothers, the Macho Man's the guy except the legend. <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Um, the innuendo that's just riddled throughout this match is phenomenal. Just Heenan saying they've been licking and whacking their way through all the competition. <laughs> um, Greco-Roman biting, Crowder chanting boring at one point, even though they do go absolutely wild for the Bushwhackers coming out. Again, go back to my point about how wrestling was just very pure at this point. I didn't write any notes for 10 minutes, so I wrote in my notes, I haven't taken any notes for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> the, the genius get, uh, clocks Jameson, even though genius is the heel and Jameson's the face, and the crowd go nuts for it. They're so happy. Uh, a double axe handle finish, and then I just wrote the state of this. But I have a little bit of information which you might enjoy. So Jameson here is a comedian called John DeJo... Oh, I heard it yesterday. I've already forgotten it, but who cares because he's not important enough. John Dejama... John Dejacomo. That's his name, right? So John Dejacomo is just a comedian. He, I think Vince thought he was a bit funny, so he stuck him on TV. Famously, he's in the crowd of the primetime wrestling where Ric Flair debuts, which obviously was all around this time. Jameson does a little bit on the camera. I think he's reading WWF magazine. We spoke about it, spoke about it on our best debuts show, if you want to go back and watch that and listen to that. But here's the cool thing, right? Jameson is the dad of the kid from the John Cena Bray Wyatt cage match at Extreme Rules 2014. Oh, that's a belter. Oh, that's interesting. That's that's something. Do you know? So, so so the the kid. I don't know what the deal with the kid is. Maybe he's quite famous, but the kid had an agent. The agent hooked up the deal completely unrelated to John De Giacomo being previously involved. Um, Vince. You sound like the bloody merchandise at Fifty Fun So Vince meets the kid after the match for the first time, and he's like, "Ah, oh, you were phenomenal, yada yada yada." And he goes, "Oh, and you must be the dad." And Jameson goes, or John, I should say, John goes, "Oh, hey Vince, I'm guessing you don't remember me." And Vince is like, "Uh, no, shoulda." And then he does the Jameson face, which is obviously like the jutted out jaw, and he kind of squints his eye. Vince goes nuts. He's like, "Oh my God, it's you!" And he and he like, obviously Vince is an arsehole, but he like drags. Jameson off he's like some of the people that were here at the time like they're uh, sorry that were in the WF in 1992 they're still here they still work in TV and he drags them off to go and meet some of the other personnel so in 2014 there was a nice story that happened as a result of this do you know this uh, Royal Rumble features uh, I mentioned Uncle Dave a couple of times with the the score systems this Royal Rumble rates in Uncle Dave's bottom 10 Royal Rumbles of all time and the justification he gives for that is this match. Um, he gives it negative stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, negative a star and a half, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite, that's quite bad. It's, it, it's a bit of a mess, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, so this would be one of the bottom ten shows because, uh, according to him, because of this match. It's what? It's a very bad match. It's just not. Not very enjoyable. The problem is sometimes you want to get to the rumble, and this kind of make, both makes you want to get to the rumble, and also makes you want to turn off. You're in that really bad 
great area. But it's such a surprise when you watch a show and you get three out of four matches are tag team matches. That just does not happen. Yeah. No. And um, yeah, and just sadly, uh, not a great match and two two particularly long matches as well. Yeah. Uh, on that note, we will go on to a final uh, tag team match of this particular undercard right before the Rumble match comes on. Uh, it's for WWF Tag Team Championships. The champions at the time, uh, the Road Warriors, LOD, Armon Hawk defending against the Natural Disasters, Typhoon and Earthquake. Two mountains of a mountains of men, it's fair to say. Uh, Chris, we've mentioned a lot about these uh, pre-match promos that we're seeing that maybe are not for the time. I think it's Hawk that comes out with a line talking about tongues hanging out like dead deers. What the hell is that? Yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit weird one. I did actually like the Legion of Doom promo because um, the, the, I think the whole plan with this match, start to finish, was don't do too much, but make the natural disasters look good. So I liked how they say that they are fighting champions and the natural disasters are the biggest team in the World Wrestling Federation. And then a good wee one-liner says they want to throw their weight around. We want to throw their weight around too. I really like that. Um, but yes, so of course, tag team champions, I think they beat them. Gary, SummerSlam 91, the Nasty Boys. Yep, Is that that's right. right. Yep. That's right. Um, I have a fun game for you to both play before we get going. Stephen and Gary, how many members of these two tag teams, so a number between one and four, how many members of these am I currently older than? <laughs> <laughs> at the time of this match, because I so their I, age I, at the match compared to my age now. Oh, what does that think about? Um, yeah, in my research, I looked up this because Earthquake at the time was twenty nine years old. Yeah, I, I, um, he is definitely. I, I read that he is quite young, and I, yeah. I think the two, I think the two Road Warriors are in their early thirties. I can't remember if this is one of it. Typhoon's older than Earthquake. Uh, I can't remember what age Chris is again if he's 31 or 32. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, I think you're older than... You'd be older than Earthquake. Uh, so I'm going to say three. Stephen? Uh, I'm going to go two. Stephen wins, right? Because Typhoon and Hawk were 35. I'm older than Animal and Earthquake. I was just watching this, looking at them both with barely a hair between them. Just thinking, God, my 32 and their 32 are, are, are very different, like. I, 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 I see that things about the earthquake, there was all the thing, like, this guy was 28 when he was wrestling, is like, you do not look 28. It's like Necro the Butcher, ne- Necro Butcher right now, he's like 36 or something, and he looks 60. Or uh, Bundy, I think, King Kong Bundy headlined WrestleMania when he was about 26 years old. I tell you guys, if this, you know, Jimmy Hart's out here with the natural disasters, if we had been doing a draft in 1992, you can bet all the money you have that David Campbell would have picked Jimmy Hart and he'd be creaming <laughs> himself with the amount of points he'd have got with Jimmy Hart on this show. Because he's, he's everywhere. This is what the th- he was there with the Mountie. He's, he's, he's there. in the Mountie. He comes out in this match. He does a post match segment he comes out in the rumble about two two or three times yeah he's everywhere on this show yeah it's you know, so this um 
uh, match. It lasted about nine minutes. I'm trying to think of positive things to say about it. There was a bit in the match where you could see, you know, the natural disasters are clearly bigger than the Legion of Doom. Uh, but the LOD wouldn't back down to them, so they would like square up at each other, which I quite liked because I kind of liked that in the in the the, the baby faces. And I think, I mean, the Road Warrior pop was still as strong this day as it had ever been when they came out for them all. There was a, a, a drop kick exchange at one point I'd noted down, um, but the finish came from you know felt like it came from absolute nowhere and. Uh, what was really interesting about this is that 19 days later, uh, having gone to a non-finish here, which presumably is to set up a return match, uh, the LOD dropped the tag titles to Money Inc., uh, Ted DiBiase and the IRS on the 7th of February at a house show. 19 days later, the LOD are out of there, and we talk about LOD in much more detail in one of our profile shows that we've done that you can find in our back catalogue if you want to check that check that out this match is very much Chris the can they get the big men off their feet type one there's a great there's a good one where I think it's is it animal looks like he's getting one of them on and the guy just falls on them and he just like oh it was a bad mistake they shouldn't have been doing that one it is kind of the thing but uh, I think the theme of this undercard is finishes that come out of nowhere it's yeah. really a common thing for it what yeah. Gary said is almost the extent of my notes on this match. I actually quite like the dynamic of the Legion of Doom being the smaller guys. Yeah. Um, it was different to any other Legion of Doom match. And, um, like, I, I think, yeah, the, the move that you, you, you pointed out, uh, Animal gets somebody up and then they immediately just pancake him. I think it's Earthquake. And then I also really liked that... I think I'm, 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 I'm watching this match, I'm thinking Typhoon's probably sneaky strong. There's one point where he grabs Hawk and hits him with like this kind of triple backbreaker move where he just drops him on his knee three times, just picking him up, like almost deadlifting him. Yeah. I was like, that's mad. Um, the finish, as you say, was rubbish. It, it, it looked like they were just setting up for the rematch. Um, but most importantly, it never looked like in this match that the Legion of Doom were going to win. And I think that was what was great about it is that was the setup perfectly for the next match is the mm-hmm. champions looked looked beat. Um, Mooney even says in the sort of post-match, well, the natural disasters will demand a rematch sometime soon. It just it was all perfectly set up. But yeah, so I actually tried to look this up and dive into the forums on this. I found some interesting chat. Obviously, I think the story goes that Hawk failed a drugs test. The he got himself suspended. They weren't allowed to wrestle between losing the belts to Money Inc. until after WrestleMania. At WrestleMania, obviously, they, I think they they just, they appear on the card, I think, with, with Paul Ellering or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But they basically don't do anything. They're just there. But I read this thing that was quite interesting that basically Vince created Money Inc. because he knew that he was about to lose Legion of Doom. And it made me think, had Hawk not failed the drugs test, would Money Inc. have one even existed and two, you know, won the belts, all the other stuff that came with Money Inc. later on, like the matches with Hogan and Beefcake, all the other stuff, I was like, oh, this all came down to Hawk failing a drugs test. I think Money Inc. were about because 
the IRS character was done for the Money Inc. thing, I'm sure. So I mm. think we're still. No, no, IRS, was, IRS was about before Money Inc. was created. The, the two of them um, had been around for, obviously, Teddy Bears had been around for some time, but you'll see from the Rumble as well, DiBiase was starting to. Yeah, um, he, was on his, he, was on, he was on his way down. That's why they put him in the tag team, then he would eventually become correct. the manager of the Million Dollar Corporation, yeah. Yeah, correct. His career was on the down, on the downward trend. I mean, this up and hope oh, this show was going on a downward trend from the opening match. <laughs> this was uh, one and a half stars. This taxi team match. This is what Royal Rumbles were until you know the modern era. The undercard was just there to fill time. And it did that because it was about an hour and a half into the show, and we had four matches, and you felt like absolutely nothing had happened. But mm-hmm. with that, that is the undercard of this particular Royal Rumble. Not one to rave about, but hey, that's not what Royal Rumbles are for. You know, you don't go to the Spider-Man movie and look out for something else. No, no, you want the Royal Rumble. Uh, so just before the Rumble match started, we got a few promo bits backstage. We first of all got an interview back in the locker room with Shawn Michaels just casually standing outside of a steam room because that's what Shawn Michaels does because this Royal Rumble came one week after Gary's brother Derek's worst moment as a wrestling fan where the Rockers split up Absolutely, with that famous uh, segment in the barber shop where we there'd been rumours that the Rockers were uh, on shaky territory. They came together to say that was not the case. And as they were posing and celebrating, Shawn Michaels super kicked Marty Jannetty out of nowhere and then threw him through the window of the barber shop, breaking up the tag team, breaking the hearts of people, turning Shawn Michaels heel. Uh, although um, now we look back on it as maybe like a bit of a Cobra Kai situation there who was really the bad guy here um, but also eliminated Marty Jannetty from the Royal Rumble and something that they did in this show Stephen which you don't get now is right at the very start of the Rumble you had Vince the man and that voice reading out the names of everybody that was going to be in the Rumble so there was no surprises back in the day you knew everybody who was going to be in the Rumble and what was the most surprising thing is when you watch this back is the jobbers that get named right up top so the first names they don't mention you'd think the first names you'd mention would be Hulk Hogan Sid Justice Macho Man Randy Savage Rip Flair Jake Zick no no you got Nasty Boy Sags and The Barbarian <laughs> Nobody is buying this pay-per-view to see these guys in the Rumble, but what, you know, uh, uh, in saying that, it is an absolutely star-studied Royal Rumble. Yeah, quickly on that uh, Rockers moment, Derek did, one, did ask me to talk about it on the show, and uh, listener of the show, Paul Toner, when I mentioned this to Derek on Twitter today, because I'm day recording this is exactly 30 years since the moment, he said that his nana wrote a complaint to Sky about it, claiming it was unsuitable for Wayne's. So anybody who watches Sky, Sky in the morning and gets their chair shots um, uh, censored, that may be half the reason why. That's brilliant. Paul, Paul Toner's nana. Yeah. Do you, know I, do you know what I, I uh, actually did, <laughs> speaking about that opening, Gary, was I was like, I bet you he named somebody wrong. I bet you they name, like, somebody that's in it, but isn't in it, or I bet you they only name, like, 27 so they can have surprises. And I sat, and every time Vince said a name, I wrote it down, paused it, 
Uh, sorry, paused it, wrote it down, play, listened to the name, wrote it down. Sure enough, he just names all 30 guys. <laughs> I was like, I was so gutted. I was like, oh, I really thought something would be wrong, but no, he names the exact 30 entrants. Of course, Brian Nobbs is out, Marty Janetti's out, Haku is in, Nikolai Volkov is in. And I was like, oh, wow, that's that's so straightforward. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was gutted there wasn't some sort of uh, I mean, shenanigans. I mean, one thing is, uh, obviously you thought the opening promo they would have done that, but they didn't do that. But they do have a bit just before the rumble where they get backstage interviews with men who many would class as the favourites for the Royal Rumble. Macho Man Randy Savage, Sid Justice, the British Bulldog, Jake the Snake Roberts, Ric Flair, The Undertaker, Hulk Hogan and the Repo Man. <laughs> the Repo Man gets a surprising spotlight in this show. When I was watching it back, I was like, the Repo Man eliminated people? <laughs> people? He eliminated more people than Savage, I think. Eliminated more than Undertaker. <laughs> yeah. Undertaker was world champ a month before. That's the reason this was for the belt, because he just it. Yeah, The Undertaker eliminated one person, so did Hacksaw. I mean, Virgil even eliminated somebody. Sergeant yeah, Slaughter was a, been in the was main... a double. Yeah. Was a, a... Sergeant Slaughter had been in the main event of WrestleMania 7, didn't eliminate a soul. Brilliant. Brilliant. Randy Savage eliminated two people. Sorry, I stand corrected. Yeah. Uh, Steven, see, um, just talking about those sort of opening promos, uh, I tried really hard to like latch onto anything good, because obviously... A lot of it, they were all just saying the same things, just saying the same words in a slightly different order. But yeah, they all mentioned the afternoon. Yeah, the afternoon? yeah. I, all the way through the pay-per-view, they kept saying the afternoon. I was like, this must have been in the afternoon, which obviously feels very strange for a wrestling pay-per-view. But yeah, I think that used to be the thing back in the day, especially Survivor Series. It used to be during the day. Um, but hey Um Piper. I wrote down this from Piper. Um, he said that he's going to knock down men like President Bush. Thank God Bush got up, but these guys won't. And I was like, right, that's obviously some piece of pop culture that was relevant in 1992. And spent about half an hour on the internet trying to find out what it was. Did I find the instant? Yes, I did. And will I share it with you now? I will. Let me cast your mind back to the 8th of January 1992. It was 11 days before this. George H. Bush, so George Sr., was attending a banquet which was hosted by the Prime Minister of Japan, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. Oh, you did uh, such a good job pronouncing names earlier on, Chris. Right, okay, so I think his name's Kichi Mayazawa. Um, so he's the Prime Minister of Japan. Um, he's got this banquet which uh, has George H. Bush in attendance. So part of the way through the meal, <laughs> the President of the United States spews in the lap of the Prime Minister of Japan and then just faints. So immediately, like, the, you can't actually find this on YouTube because it was on all the news sites, so they've taken it all down. But um, obviously the Secret Service go mental trying to figure out what's happened. George Bush is just lying on the floor. Everyone thinks he's dead. When he wakes up, you know, George H was quite funny. Um, he, he says, just leave me here till the dinner's done. Um, but in the end, it just turned out he had flu. How mad's that? spewed on the Prime Minister of Japan. People have gone to war for this. 
That feels like a skip from like um, Hot Shots or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was actually parodied on Saturday Night Live for about the next 12 months. <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised. They, they do love a thing about the President of the United States. Um, but on to the Rumble match at Gary. The, the number one and two is a big, massive thing in any Royal Rumble now. You kind of sit and watch it. If it's not been pre announced, you're kind of like, who's going to be the two they start off with? There's been years they just chuck two random people in it. But there's kind of years as well where they do like what they did in t- uh, 2013, I believe, with Dolph Ziggler and Chris Jericho. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year we had the British Bulldog, one of the guys who got himself a wee bit of a promo before it, so you knew he was going to have a decent showing. And the guy you mentioned that was on his on a downward trend in his career, Ted DiDiase, who was the number one entrant in the Rumble in 1992 years before. So he'd been used to being in the Rumble for the long haul. Was it in this Rumble for the long haul? <laughs> no, he certainly was not. I mean, they were two, you know, two headline names to start with. Not, I mean, not your tippy top guys, but like the next next category down. So you're starting off with real intention here. And Ted DiBiase, as you said, Stephen, he'd been an Iron Man in the previous year, and the year after that, uh, he was number thirty, and there was a whole storyline about him buying uh, his, his influence in, in the match. And so on. So it was a it was a massive surprise that DiBiase didn't last uh, long enough to see number three come out. He was just in there for just just over one minute, and we're off off to the races. And when you watch back this pay per view, you get one of those interviews for co- exclusive for Coliseum home videos added yeah. in with Lord Alfred Hayes sculpting around. But he speaks to Ric Flair, where Ric Flair tells him that he's drawn number three. So that's inserted into the broadcast, but the commentators clearly didn't see that because they kept talking about who's number three. I mean, I hate it when I know who's going to be in the rumble at any numbers. I'd much prefer it all to be a surprise. I hate it when any of them get announced. And if the commentators had seen that Ric Flair drew number three, we would have been denied that Bobby Heenan reaction when the buzzer goes and Flair walks out as number three. I just thought his reaction was was phenomenal. He's, he's so good with the Flair ones. Anytime Flair does something, there's a, there's a point in the match where he's trying to, su- I think he's trying to suplex Piper. Is it Piper? He's trying to suplex Piper out from the apron and he's just like, what's he doing trying to do that? He's just, every single thing, he's just like, Conserve your energy. Stop trying to fight people. There's a great line in it, Gorilla Monsoon, who I, I love those two as, as partners, and there's a, a reason that they're both on our Mount Rushmore commentators. Um, when Gorilla Monsoon says to, to Flair, uh, sorry, says to Heenan that some, some men hate Flair more than others. When he was talking about them being every man for himself, he said, No, it's not. Some hate Flair more than others. There's a love. But number two, historically, it always been a. Uh, a kiss of death and as Monsoon pointed out many times nobody had drawn numbers one through five and been here at the end so they were really setting the scene here to say Ric Flair's not got a chance in hell of winning this match I mean you talk about lines that he didn't does I love how I think when the barbarian comes out he just like he didn't like me when I was his manager <laughs> He's just so good in this match. Uh, the story is that uh, that Heenan had pitched for Flair to be number one in in the match, and uh, Vince McMahon had opted against that. But then it went to go for number three, 
and um, and believed it to be his own idea. I mean, either way, Flair gets an incredible spotlight. Yeah. Uh, Chris, but I know you're a man for picking out the fine details in a lot of matches. Uh, was, is there something in the crowd with a cowbell? <laughs> oh my God, this is right at the start of my notes, right. What <laughs> the hell is that noise? All the way through the, not even just the first match, not even the first and second match, all the way through the pay-per-view, I just keep writing, what's that noise? What's that noise? For the benefit of anyone that is uh, listening along to this at home, it's sort of like, I've got right, I've got a cup next to me, right? I'm going to try and uh, replicate it, but it's basically just like... And then, like, the buzzer goes off, and then it's like, three, two, one, and... It's so annoying. See, for, see for so many years, I always you always see the clip of flare coming out, because that's what you always see. And you always hear that noise of the bell. And I always think that's the buzzer. And then you watch more of the match going, wait, that's not the buzzer. And it's just some, I think it's just some guy with a cool bell. I thought I it did, was the buzzer. What I decided it was, no, you was a, match. It, it was a pencil and an iron brew bottle. That's what yeah. the sound sounded like. Somebody brought a pencil and a glass bottle of iron brew, finished it, put a pencil in it, and then was just rattling it. And it was, <laughs> it was the most annoying bit of this whole show. I'll take the bushwhackers in silence over watching the bushwhackers again with that noise. It was, good God, it was so annoying. I miss, the, when you look back at these old shows, obviously the production values aren't the same. I kind of, I really miss the entrance music not being there. Because you could imagine the the reaction would have been even stronger of the live audience if Flair's music had hit. Because it takes the audience, clearly it takes them a minute to realise who it is. Because they're seeing it on uh, probably not even in many screens about the place. There wouldn't mm. be many of them at the time, so they're looking down to see who, who is this. Yeah. You get that moment. You get that moment when they get to number thirty, and the war and the, the, the warlord's been announced as thirty before it. And it was a heating again, just like if, if I know Tony, he might just pull a, flat, a fast one, and then the warlord just comes out. But I knew it was the warlord. <laughs> the worst number thirty in the history of the Royal Rumble, and thankfully something that wouldn't happen in this day and age. The warlord is number thirty. Could you imagine what would be the modern day equivalent of the warlord in number thirty? I will, I will give you some insight. There's some horrendous number 30s around about this time. So the year before, in 1991, Tugboat is number 30. Yeah. The Warlord is 30, at 90, Warlord is 30 in 92. Randy Savage is 30 the year after, which is pretty good. Then we have a three-year run of hell. Uh, Adam Bomb. Yeah, Crush. yeah. Sorry, Adam Bomb, baby. <laughs> uh, uh, so we have Crush, Crush in 95. And my personal favourite, 1996, Duke, Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, who, Aww. at the beginning of this show, beats Triple H for the right to be number 30. Triple H enters that rumble at number one. Yeah. That you make is... a compelling argument, Stephen. I, I, I'll need to withdraw my statement that the Warlord is the worst number 30 of history. There's <laughs> clearly some stiffer competition for it. It, it, it. it gets better after that. It goes... Undertaker, Vader, China, which is historic ones. There's X-Pac in 92. X-Pac and Rikishi are kind of a bit of fate, but then it gets a lot better uh, as the years go on. Only other uh, one I can remember is like, I think Booker T in 2002. Booker T was, he was 2002, yeah. Yeah, and he comes he out is. and he immediately eliminates Rob Van Damme and I remember being so gutted. 
It's a. Uh, yeah, there's a. Stratus is one of my personal favourites when it comes to number 30s. Tr- Trish Stratus was good. I remember that year thinking. Obviously, I was going to Ronda Rousey's going to be 30. And I'm sitting thinking, no, wait, no, Trish Stratus hasn't been out. They can't have a fucking Royal Rumble first ever women's one out, Trish. Mm. Uh, but let's go on. Let's talk about some details of this Rumble. I tried, we tried to pick out some particularly good moments in this one. Uh, uh, Gary, I'll go back to you. We'll talk about uh, the nature boy, Ric Flair, in this particular instance. He, he's in the match from number three to the very end. So around about an hour he's in the match. And he, he's such a highlight with everything he does in the match. The selling that he does and the two corner sales that he does for Texas Tornado and uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Takes a right hand and just literally walks out. Bang! Yeah. It's fantastic. He's just... It's the first Rumble match he's ever been in, but he's just cater made for this environment. Oh, he's he's tremendous. He's clearly, you know, as we 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 know with Flair's career, he has wrestled multiple hour-long matches. So this was tailor-made for him. Um, and one of the great things about Flair in this match is he, he takes everybody's big moves as well. He's getting Gorilla Press slammed. He's getting Texas Tornado punched. He took the figure four leg lock off of the Hammer Valentine in the match. He's taking everybody's finish and all their big moves. Roddy Piper slaps him to fuck at one point in the, in the corner, like literally scud. Yeah. But what was so great, he had all this selling by Flair and, and being involved with this, but he doesn't eliminate anybody until quite late into the match. I think the first person he eliminates is, um, is the Bulldog, but that comes at just about the halfway point of the match. Yeah, he, he, he kind of gets the, the typical couple of eliminations when the kind of you get the big crowd in the ring and yeah. it goes down to a couple of them and he's the one that kind of gets like more of the eliminations at that so point. I, I thought, Stephen, I'd put this match in like three parts. So I think part one for me was number one through to 14 and then we had the clear out. Uh, and then you had the second bit that followed through up until The Undertaker coming in at number 20. And then, uh, and then that took us through to the finish. But this first part, where you had Flair going up against the Bulldog, you know, Haku, Shawn Michaels, Tito Santana, Texas Tornado, the Hammer, the Big Boss Man, I mean, Boss Man and Flair, uh, sorry, uh, Bulldog and Flair kept coming back to each other, and the crowd were clearly loving it because number. Uh, three, uh, sorry, number two, four and five, then they last particularly long, so they kept getting them back to them. And then we got a little moment, which looking back through our historical lens, I really appreciated when you had a young Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair in the prime, mm-hmm. and you had them going at it for a bit, and you had Shawn Michaels throwing some particularly dodgy looking uh, super kicks. But knowing the future that those two would have and the super kick that would end Flair's career was just a little moment that I loved looking back and watching. Yeah, uh, Chris, uh, brief mention on the boss man. Uh, there's a lot of guys that exit Royal Rumbles in style. Uh, uh, the boss man, <laughs> there's, a, there's a style that he exits this match from and it's not graceful. <laughs> so did, they, did he not... Um, he basically went for the cross body and then just yeah. flips over the top rope. Yeah, I think Flair technically gets credited for the elimination, but I think he kind of just flicks the foot 
It's a good callback to um, Bossman's tag team partner, One Man Gang, because of course that's how he gets eliminated by Jim Duggan in the very first one for Jim Duggan to win the first ever one. If you remember. Can I give a special shout out to two men, two guys I want to touch on, Greg the Hammer Valentine, who and Nikolai Volkov, both eliminated by the Repo Man. The Hammer the year before had been the Iron Man and he'd lasted uh, 44 minutes. He comes in here at number 11, he becomes the fifth man to be eliminated, lasting only four minutes. And But Nikolai Volkov, uh, who was eliminated by the Repo Man, Oh, poor Nikolai looked like some he'd been lost. He looked totally lost. He got in the ring, he didn't know what the hell to do. And I mean, he, he looked—he looks so happy to be in the match when he's coming down the ramp. He just he's yeah. high-fiving people, waving, and then he's like, he just gets in the ring, and I think it takes him a good fifteen seconds to actually like interact with anybody. He's just kind of like scooting around, which, which is something because he's in the match for him. He's in the match for just over a minute. The yeah, other guy I noted for something like that, uh, Hercules. Hercules comes down to the ring. He gets in the ring. He looks fucked. He looks absolutely knackered. Should have walked it, Herc. Should have walked it. You think Nikolai's been sent out there uh, with a message of like, oh, you're only supposed to be in this match. Just just go and do something and get out in a minute. And Hercules, you need to be about it here soon because we've got a big moment at number 15. So hurry up and get to the ring. And he's ran to the ring and ended up completely gassed. <laughs> Because I, I kind of feel, I feel Chris, this uh, rumble is very bottom heavy because top half of it, you got Bulldog in at one, Flair in at three. Uh, I'm not going to count Michaels, even though he is obviously a legend because he was still, this was just the start of his singles run, so I'm not really going to count him as incredible. You don't really get till Piper at 15, you feel something's happening, and even then, it's only really Piper and maybe Jake the Snake in that top 19. And as Gary mentioned, when The Undertaker comes out, that's when you start to kind of feel like something's going to happen here. Yeah, um, I'm going to tell you this openly now. I missed someone in my count because I got to Undertaker and Undertaker was 20. But before that, Snooker, I'd only counted 18. And I knew I missed somebody. So I don't know who I missed. But you're right. Uh, all the guys up to this point, if you take away Flair and Bulldog, uh, and obviously Ted DiBiase had been sort of it was them getting the jobbers out of the way which is is a good thing because they don't really do that now they sometimes will throw out you know I don't know R-Truth at like 29 and you're just like oh sound that's a wasted spot isn't it but yeah they got they got all these guys out of the way uh, early I didn't really have guys amongst sorry. us guys sorry I to pick you up on that one like uh, Tito Santana whilst uh, he maybe not going to win it was a former Continental champion he always features mm. prominently the Texas Tornado was super over I was, I was actually just going to bring I'm him up because as well. I was going to bring up Texas Tornado because I actually really liked that I don't know if you noticed this but Texas Tornado grounds the side of the ring and immediately just locks eyes with Flair and I thought that was quite a nice callback because um, Texas Tornado of course beat Flair for the NWA heavyweight title um, at the Memorial Parade of Champions and this was in 1984 it was not long after the death of Ketno Texas Tornado's Kerry right yeah. so it was, it's not long after the death of his brother who was obviously getting pure groomed to be the future of the NWA 
Uh, uh, do you know what? Just watch the Dark Side of the Ring episode on it. Yeah, it's, it's much it's, better. It's, it's, than, it's, it's, yeah. That's a tragic story, the, yeah. the, that Von Eric family. But what I liked is here we are eight years later and straight away they go in the ring and they go after each other. And, and Gary touched on it actually, the, the Texas Tornado flare section of this match where they're just going for each other. I really enjoyed that and it made me think, I bet these two guys have quite a lot of history together. Um, I really don't have much else in the first 15. I liked the Greg the Hammer was the the um, Iron Man from the last Rumble. Volkov, Stephen, just adding to the fact of the sheer confusion. Um, Keenan calls him Lithuanian. Gorilla, call- <laughs> <laughs> Gorilla calls him Russian. He was born in Croatia, so none of the above. Um, I, I was even thinking, I was like, I didn't look up, but I was like, did Lithuania exist in 1992? <laughs> like. Was that one of those later countries? But who knows? Um, Bossman, uh, Hercules, Piper, Snake. I, I've still not got much on. I, I, Gary, I want to go back to something you said a bit earlier about how Flair didn't eliminate anyone. That's the genius of Flair in this yeah. match. He knows that if he's trying to eliminate people, he's going to be susceptible to being eliminated. Like he's going to be close to the ropes. He's going to be, you know, exposed from behind. That was really good. Um, he only eliminates the man that has been in the match the longest. It's like the smartest move you can possibly make in a Royal Rumble. I, I was trying to look down at all of the sort of subtle nuances in, in Flair's character throughout this whole thing, because that's it. This is this is the story of Ric Flair. This match. This is his um, yeah. coming out moment in the WWF. So I was trying to pick up on his little, as many of these little bits as possible. And yeah, I, I like that. I like that he he was conserving energy almost. Yeah, it was really cleverly done because you get to this midpoint and then you got Bulldog, Dex Tornado, Big Boss Man being eliminated here. But it was pushing Flair without ramming them down the audience's throat. As we'd see it in years to come, you see somebody like Diesel and Braun Strowman and uh, Kane to an extent uh, as well, that they got their push by eliminating loads of people. Flair d- didn't get that. And, but what we got when we we, we cleared it, so we've got back to number 15 here, so we're halfway through, the ring's been emptied, Flair's there on his own, buzzer goes, and Piper comes out, and Flair's reaction, you get a similar moment in a few years later with Austin and Brett, the facials reaction was just phenomenal, he totally sold that moment, and uh, everybody was super excited when these two finally locked up as well. That was one of my highlights of this rumble was there was that moment between Piper, uh, Flair's reaction to Piper, and then Piper and Flair locking up. I mean, I mean, you talk about that being one of your favourite moments. One of my favourite moments is one that I think the people backstage then had to think, right, we need to be explicit about the rules of the match and <laughs> how the eliminations take place. I'm talking about Macho Man Randy Savage. Yes. Comes in like a comes in like a blooming house on fire, trying to find Jake. Jake's really smart. Jake's smart throughout this match when he's in it. Uh, just goes right, I'm hiding until everybody beats up Randy. Comes back in, backfires in two minutes for Randy ends up eliminating him. And then Randy Savage decides, I'm gonna go and take the fight to Jake again by launching myself over the top rope and punching him to the confusion of the commentators because <laughs> I think it's a this is a monsoon that or he didn't, one of the two of them just goes like he's no one no one threw him over the top rope so he's not eliminated it's like yeah 
I think uh, Keenan explicitly says no one threw Macho over the top rope so he can continue. And 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 also I, I couldn't get past like why is what's Undertaker doing? Undertaker's just getting involved with Macho and uh, Jake. Was- it's almost like he was like saying to Macho, like, stop messing this up, get back in the ring, you're going to ruin it for everyone. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. Um, Macho I, doesn't have a great track record in Rumbles, I think. He was in the ninth, he was in the one. Yokozuna. Later, it was him and Yokozuna, and he goes yeah. for the elbow drop and tries to pin him. Yeah, yeah he, messed, he messed that up. He hit, hit the elbow, didn't he? And then he got up and then jumped back down on him because the idea was he was to do the elbow, and then Yoko just immediately kicked, throws him over. He got up. Yeah. Another one that I, I remember, which is of a similar vein of like breaking the rules, is what was the year that Vader gets eliminated and then he comes back in and starts hoying guys out again? And they have to be like, no, no, it doesn't count. Oh, Maybe like 97, 98, 99, somewhere around then. Yeah, there was a story with the 97 number. I'm not sure if that's the one you're thinking of, because well, that set up the final four pay-per-view when Austin got eliminated and he wasn't supposed to be. Yes, that's um, another good one. But that was a, that was a good story. But yeah, the number 27, you mentioned The Undertaker came in at number 20. What was surprising looking back at this, because The Undertaker, was super scary at the time, super intimidating. Had won the title at Survivor Series. He was part of the big story that led to this championship being vacant and the championship being the, the undisputed champion being determined by the Royal Rumble. Never happened. Royal Rumble, sorry, never happened before. So Undertaker beats um, um, Hulk Hogan at Survivor Series with the help of Ric Flair who's through the chair in the ring gets tombstoned onto the chair we then get a return match set up by Jack Tunney for this Tuesday in Texas where uh, Hogan uh, retains the title but Jack Tunney was supposed to be at ringside to make sure nothing went wrong with the match but he gets taken out during the match by Ric Flair so doesn't actually see the finish declares the title vacant and here we have The Undertaker coming in at number 20. He lasted 13 minutes. He got one elimination. He eliminated the Superflies, four from WrestleMania 7. Uh, but when Hogan appears, Hogan makes fairly quick work of The Undertaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. There's no much, there's no much to it. Taker's been, Taker eliminates Snooker pretty much just when he comes out. Mm-hmm. And just feels like a bit of an afterthought. It just goes about choking people for the full match. Yeah. You know? he, he does a low blow on Hacksaw, is it? Which I thought was interesting because that's not really the type of thing you've seen from The Undertaker. Another great Keenan call in this match. Uh, Ric Flair tries to low blow Undertaker and he just goes, he was trying to lift him. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 the low blow was weird because the, the second one, the Flair one, because like, what's Taker supposed to do there? He can't like react like normal because then he's his character doesn't look as good but he can't not react because then he's like making a look fake i thought that was a bit strange i actually noted that i was like what was that low blow supposed to be um i I thought gary go back to what you were saying about jack tunney i thought taker got a bit screwed here because the whole chat after it was that because those were the two that got stripped of the title that Taker and Hogan would get drawn in numbers 20 to 30. They would get a slight advantage. Taker is straight out at number 20, whereas Hogan doesn't come out till 26. I was like, that doesn't seem very fair. What was interesting about the ordering of this, because we talked about the jobbers earlier on, so you've got Taker in at 20, Macho Man in at 21, and then Hogan comes in at 26. In the middle, talk about jobbers, you've got the Berserker, Virgil, 
Colonel Mustafa, Rick Martell. Colonel Mustafa, the Iron Sheik, who folk might remember from WrestleMania 17 when he was in the gimmick Battle Royal, Bobby Heenan said, by the time he gets to the ring, it'll be WrestleMania 38. Well, he says here, by the time they get to the ring, <laughs> it will be WrestleMania as well. And Rick Martell coming in afterwards, maybe unfair to call him a jobber, he was the original Iron Man in the, in the Royal Rumbles. What? What I like, I don't know if they actually mean to do this, but at the point where Martell comes in, Flair's on the verge of beating Martell's record. So Martell goes for Flair and eliminate, tries to eliminate Flair. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but if it is, that's a great thing. It's just like, he's going to beat my record, I'm going to knock him out. Yeah. Which is, which is great. Um, IRS being eliminated by the tie. That was brilliant. That was really very good. Well, that's very well done. Uh, IRS was in this Royal Rumble for 27 minutes. He's in it for a while. Mm-hmm. He in it for a while. Uh, and um, Hulk Hogan at the end, acting like the pettiest little boy you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> he eliminated me. I'm going to hold his arm. <laughs> it was proper. You think Hogan's promo earlier on touched on there's no friends in the, in the Royal Rumble, and this was proper heel behaviour. He's been eliminated. We've seen it in years. Uh, the more recent years, people being eliminated by the friend at the end, being like, "Ah, you got me." Whereas he, he then he's so so perturbed by this, can't believe it's happening. Uh, that he would rather Ric Flair win the Rumble than than uh, than um, than he just suck up that he was beaten fair, fairly fairly and squarely uh, as well in this one. I have to give a special shout out to Sergeant Slaughter before we finish, although he was very much on the downward trend here. He got a tremendous looking elimination from uh, from Sid, with Sid sort of threw him across the ring and he goes straight into the buckles with such force he ends up going over the top rope. Um, But I thought uh, with this finish, Stephen was looking back on it, I I think somebody could, you could argue that the shenanigans between Hogan and Sid almost overshadowed Flair's victory because Flair goes out the ring like a scalded dog uh, to quote JR ends up going backstage, he doesn't pose in the ring, doesn't really celebrate in the ring, doesn't get the championship in the ring, he goes backstage and then you're left in the arena with Hogan and uh, Sid with a pull apart but Flair uh, salvages it all with that promo backstage, so um, I thought yeah. that was worth uh, worth pulling out. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the background there. The 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 finish to all of this. So obviously, uh, as you've touched on, um, like the the first sort of bit of the ending sequence that I picked out on was Hogan actually dumps Flair out onto the apron, and Heenan's almost crying. He actually shouts, I'm soaking wet! <laughs> Which I just, I liked. Um, so, uh, and also when um, Slaughter comes out, going back to that, Heenan says that everyone is so scared of Flair that they go after him as soon as they get in. Which makes a lot of sense. So, um, Sid comes out, Sid goes straight after Flair. That was a nice callback to obviously being Horseman back in the 80s. Um, Flair and Hogan are fighting on the outside. There's a whole bunch of eliminations as Slaughter goes out, IRS goes out with Piper, um, 
Sid and Hogan team up to eliminate Warlord. Sid then eliminates Martel and Piper together. Flair somehow eliminates Macho by sort of kneeing Sid in the back and Macho falling out as well. So we're down to Hogan, Flair and Sid. Hogan and Flair are going at it while Sid watches. Again, if you haven't listened to our Survivor Series 97, 6 episodes, it's 96, thank you. Um, I'm just going to bang on about how Sid is the best wrestler in the whole entire world. Um, he rightfully doesn't make a move when Hogan or Flair are battering each other. But just when Hogan gets Flair on the ground, he's exposed him, goes up behind Hogan, chucks him over the top rope. Thought that was brilliant. I actually think, Gary, I don't know if this is a bit of an overstatement, I think that was the biggest moment in Sid's career to that point. He throws out the biggest superstar in the world of wrestling out of the Royal Rumble. And Hogan, of course, starts giving him grief, as you said. And he turns to Hogan on camera and says, it's every man for himself, big boy. And just in that moment, it made Hogan look tiny. And like the image of Sid, who's bigger than Hogan in real life anyway, him standing over Hogan uh, as he looks down on Hogan outside the ring, ring, that just for a moment was brilliant. And the crowd loved it as well, because obviously um, six years in, pretty done with it. Um, and it was just a great moment. And then, of course, Hogan grabs Sid's arm, Flair shoves out Sid, and Ric Flair wins. Um, I didn't I didn't love this ending um, for two reasons. I think that Flair or Sid or even Hogan should... Well, I, I guess Hogan had no chance of winning, but the last two should have won legitimately. Uh, it takes a wee bit of the shine off of Flair, and it even more so takes the shine off of Flair by doing what they did and basically making... Flair leave. That bugged me so much. Flair should be in the ring with the belt. I'm all about these moments existing in the ring. Flair should be standing in the ring holding the belt. If you want to keep cutting back and forwards to Flair in the ring and Hogan and Sid arguing on the outside, I'd be fine with that, but not not the way they did it. Thankfully, of course, they saved it with Flair's promo in the back. Stephen, I was in a car with Gary recently following ICW in November. I was on Gary's knee because the car only had um, five seats and there was about 25 people in it. Basically, I was one of the first ones eliminated. Um, but I was just shouting in Gary's face a lot because I was quite inebriated. And one of the things that I was shouting at him was, what's your favourite wrestling promo? And someone in that car that night said the promo that Flair gives after he wins the Royal Rumble in 1992. And of course, it is one of the best promos in wrestling history. I still want to maybe lump in a little bit of what he says before the match as well, because I think that's quite important. Flair says, for four months, I've said I am the real world champion. And for me, there is no back door. He basically says, it doesn't matter what happens now. I have to back this up because I'm done if I don't back this up now. And then he says, um, you know that to make everyone a believer, you've got to beat 29 other men. I'll be in there close to an hour. And when I walk out, I'll be World Wrestling Federation champion. And if you look back on those three sentences, that is exactly what he did. Of course, the, the promo goes, with a tear in my eye, this is the greatest moment in my life. The only way you get to stay number one is to be number one. I like that slight variation on his phrase. And then he says, and this is the only title in the wrestling world which makes you number one. It's just brilliant. He suddenly goes from being this guy that talks himself up massively to being a guy that has made this belt seem like a million bucks. He suddenly made the, 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 the profile of him as this real world champion merge 
and to the WWF champion being massive. So all of a sudden, the, in the split in a split second, the company just gets boosted massively. Um, and then he ends saying, for the Hogans, the Machos, the Pipers, and the Sid, now it's Ric Flair, and you all have to pay homage to the man. And it was just such a good ending. Man, I love I love this promo so so much. Such a great promo. Imagine if he cut that promo in the ring. It might not have been the same, but uh, just imagine if he had been able to. There's another great line in there where he says, "When you're the king of the WWF, you rule the world." And there's also a great moment in this sort of bit where they're backstage with Mean Gene Oakland shouts at somebody, "Hey, put that cigarette out." <laughs> well, um, Whilst this was a, a a really significant moment in Ric Flair's career, it was interesting to look back at it, and I love this Royal Rumble uh, as well. I really loved it, so I was looking forward to talking about it. Whilst the undercard was rightly slated, I think this match is fabulous. One of the, the interesting things about this match itself, there's not a great deal of individual stories told during the match. You've got Piper Flair, you've got a Savage, and um, Jake the Snake, and you've got a, a very brief moment, Undertaker and Hogan, but there's not a great deal of individual stories. And also what this pay-per-view doesn't really do it, that you see now is set up a lot of matches for WrestleMania. So really from this show, you get Sid and Hogan and Piper and Brett for WrestleMania, which I thought was interesting just to look back on it, just a different era, a different approach to, to it then. but. I mean, I, I just a, a, a tremendous Royal Rumble as far as I'm concerned. Now, before we get on to our final thoughts about the pay-per-view as a whole, I'm going to give you all some stats from the 1992 Royal Rumble match. Now, at one hour, 62 minutes and two seconds, this ranks as the eighth longest 30-person Royal Rumble match of all time. The longest currently is the women's uh, Royal Rumble from 2019 won by Becky Lynch. The most eliminations in this match was Sid Justice with six, although that tally of six is the joint third lowest ever from a, a top joint elimination. The lowest is four. Sid was only in it. Sorry, Stephen. Sid was only in the Rumble for about six minutes as well. Yeah, the bit of a flurry towards the end, kind of mm-hmm. like Shayna Baszler got in 2020 in the Women's Royal Rumble. No matter the four is the lowest top uh, eliminations in a Rumble, and that was in 2016, the men's in 2018 and 2021. Uh, the most time in the Rumble was obviously Ric Flair, he was in there for about an hour. Uh, after him we had Roddy Piper, just under, just over 34 minutes. As Gary mentioned, IRS at 27 minutes. IRS the third longest in this Royal Rumble, which is mental. Uh, the British Bulldog, who started it off just over 23 minutes, and Randy Savage at 22 minutes. The least amount of time in the Rumble was poor Hercules at 56 seconds. Uh, after him, another poor run, Nikolai Volkov at just over a minute. Then it was Jerry Sags at 1 minute 6 and Ted DiBiase at 1 minute 18. At 1 minute 40, 43 seconds, the Warlord lasted the fifth least amount of time for a number 30 entry in the Royal Rumble. Only only Tyler Breeze in the Greatest Royal Rumble, Booker T in 2002, China in 1999, and as we mentioned earlier on, Duke the Jungster Josie lasted less time than the Warlord after entering at number 30. Uh, At 23 minutes 33, the British Bulldog lasted the 15th least amount of time of a number one entry. Now obviously he's kind of in the middle ground in that one. 
The number one entry in Royal Rumble history that lasted the least amount of time was HBK Shawn Michaels in 2003, eliminated by Chris Jericho, Christian double act that particular year. Uh, Ric Flair was the first Royal Rumble winner to enter in the first 10. I know they mentioned in commentary nobody from five, but nobody from less than 10 had won the Rumble up to that point. He is also one of only two people to not only win from number three, but to also be the iron person in that particular rumble. The other person was obviously Bianca Belair in last year's Women's 2021 Royal Rumble. And something we've not really mentioned too much, this was the first Royal Rumble match ever to have stakes. Because in the years to follow this one, of course, as we know well, winning the Royal Rumble now guarantees you a title match at WrestleMania. Because before this one, you won the Royal Rumble, and that was it. The only exception was, of course, Roman Reigns when he defended the WWE title in 2016 from number one. And that is some stats from the Royal Rumble match. Now, I'm going to go to my two panellists here. We're going to do what we usually do on these uh, pay-per-view lookbacks. We're going to rate this pay-per-view out of five. Gary, I'm going to go to you in this one. What would you rate this pay-per-view? Oh, are we rating the pay-per-view overall or the Rumble give me, give me the Rumble. Give me a Rumble match and a pay-per-view. Right, are we going for out of five again, is it, or is it out of ten? Yeah, out of five. Out of five. So, I mean, the final four of this rumble, Hogan, Sid, Savage, Flair, it's a star-studded rumble, it's got some nice moments in it, it's absolutely stacked. Ric Flair's uh, WWF coming out moment, as Chris put it earlier on, so I think I would give this rumble four out of five. I think uh, as a pay-per-view overall it is a one match show so as a pay-per-view overall I think you're maybe two out of five mm-hmm. yeah I think that's pretty fair uh, Chris what are you going with yeah I think um, that is that is the thing it's the difference between the show as a whole and the the, the uh, rumble itself the rumble itself for me is probably a 4.5 mm-hmm. I think that it's one of the best in wrestling history and the reason I think it's one of the best is a number of reasons rumbles have to be good with the stars that are in them go through this list of 30 and count how many are in the hall of fame count how many won the world title it's a huge number very very impressive and the stakes were higher as you said Stephen that made the match even better Flair running the the gauntlet and winning the belt at the end was brilliant topped off by one of the most famous wrestling promos at the end of course the event itself uh, is a bit of a, a letdown leading up to this, but you have to you, you have to factor in the real life circumstance of that they have to have wrestlers that aren't in the rumble significantly on the undercard and stuff like that. And this, I think, there was just Piper that made both like a match on the undercard and in the main event, right? Um, and it's just it's just a, f- a phenomenal phenomenal match. But the the the, the full pay per view, I'd probably give like a three. I think um, the tag title match, I liked the almost like the potential of it and I liked the promos that came around it. The match itself was a bit of a letdown and I liked the opening contest, the tag team attraction match, but everything else was garbage. I wish that they'd cut maybe an hour off of this show, but then, you know, it's difficult to justify calling it a pay-per-view at that point. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to go... Uh, 4.5 for the Rumble itself, but uh, 3 for the card overall. Is that what I said? 3? Yeah? Too many yeah, numbers. Yeah. 
Well, I've actually got to agree with Gary in this particular one. I think the Rumble for a four and the pay-per-view as a whole, a two. I just can't justify giving a pay-per-view more than two with those uh, that Bushwhackers Beverly Brothers match. I can't, can't justify it. Can't justify it. I mean, I can Roddy Piper when I think the Continental title, Leech the Doom were there. You could have maybe got more if he maybe took that one, that, that tag match out. But the actual main event superb. It's rightly why many people class it as one of the greatest Royal Rumble matches of all time. It's the only match in this pay-per-view I'd watched before the last couple of days. And it's the only match in this pay-per-view I'll probably ever watch again. So credit to the, the booking of that particular show. But that has been our look back at the 1992 Royal Rumble show. Actually, before I mentioned, Gary did actually note to Chris's question, 18 Hall of Famers on that lineup. That's so more, more, what is phenomenal about that number is more people from this Rumble are in the Hall of Fame than are not, which is wild, absolutely wild. There's people in this match that will go into the Hall of Fame that just aren't in it yet, like The Undertaker, for example. Yep, there you go. Yeah, Blank sits in the Hall of Fame. He's not. He's not. Maybe the softball Hall of Fame. Said Maybe the softball Hall of Fame. <laughs> but, but yeah, that has been a look back at the 1992 Royal Rumble. If you've never watched this particular pay-per-view, please watch it and then listen to this review. Obviously, if you're listening to me say this, you have listened to the review. So if you've not watched the pay-per-view, go back and watch the pay-per-view and go back and listen to this and give us your thoughts on this particular show. Do it on social media. We're all on there, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. You know, share the show, comment on us. Subscribe to us if you've never uh, listened to us before. Uh, we're on all the podcast networks, not just the one you're listening to us on. And we're also on YouTube as well. Now, in the coming weeks, next week's feature show, uh, we'll be looking at the career of the current Universal Champion, Roman Reigns. That's an interesting one to look back on. Uh, we're not doing another pay-per-view look back for another month. Our next one comes on the 15th of February, where we'll be looking back at St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the last of the WWF-branded In Your House pay-per-views before, obviously, the two ones from NXT during the pandemic. So that will be an interesting one to see how that goes. Uh, I'd like to thank my panel for this particular show. Uh, to Chris, thank you very much. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Stephen, I forgot to cram in one thing that I wanted to tell you earlier, which was I found an interview with Flair where he talks about the post-match promo. Can I read it out to you? It's like two lines. Oh, so he said that I went from Atlanta to Albany, New York, and my life changed in one day. Literally one day. That's the truth. One day I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do, and the next day I was the champion. When I was walking back down the aisle, Pat Patterson came to me and said, you've got a promo. That was it. He said, talk about how happy you are. And I said, no problem. What I said was directed right at Jim Herd and anyone who had anything to do with WCW. I've always liked Ted Turner, and Ted loved wrestling, but he didn't have anything to do with hiring the idiots that ran it. And I repeat, idiots. That was it. As we've seen, come, come day, Rick Flood does not hold any punches. Yeah. So uh, thank you very, thank you very much for having me on the show. And yes, I'm, I'm hosting that St. Valentine's Day Massacre show. I can't wait. I had it on video when I was younger. Uh, I'm going to dive back in. We're going to look at some of the big debuts or debut, which happened on that show. Excited to hear everyone's thoughts on it. So yes, we'll be back in a month. 
if you want to know more about that big debut, please watch Dark Elevation on YouTube where he is doing some work <laughs> on that particular show. <laughs> and uh, to Gary, thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. It's been great fun to look back and I sign off with a tear in my eye. <laughs> yeah, I've been Stephen Wilson and we will all see you next time. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Scott McLeod. And I'm Grant McGrobbie. We are the host of the monthly show on Eat Sleep Suplex Retreat East Meets West. Where we'll bring you all the latest happenings, reviews and big events from New Japan and the land of the Far East. You can remember to check that out on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retreat podcast feed on all good Android podcasting sites like Anchor, Spotify or iTunes now.